Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached Word of God in agreement to the Scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. What a sweet presence of God in this place. Just to walk in and to feel such an uninterrupted flow of the presence of the Lord. I want to stand in awe of that. I don't want to dash too quickly through this because no matter how long this service lasts tonight it will end and when it's over it will all be over filed forever in the pages of history so while we're here why don't we just bask in the presence of the Lord let his authority his anointing his spirit wash over us (laughs) amen why don't we just stand one time can we just praise the Lord with our hearts, amen, let's magnify him. I'm not suggesting that we have not been doing that, but I pray that the spirit, the anointing and the authority of that Holy One would just touch our hearts here this evening and strengthen us today, God, by your divine presence. Praise your name, praise your name, praise your name. Oh God, I thank you for your unending love. David said, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I'm thankful for his mercy today. Amen, amen. You may be seated in the fear of the Lord. I want you to join me, if you will, in the book of Mark chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 41 through 50 this evening. And... um, Just pray that the Spirit of God will touch us tonight. It's so good to see Sister Myers with us this evening. Amen. Not without great sacrifice that she is here, but we are very humbled to have her with us in service, and our prayers are with them daily. Amen. I see Brother Myers quite often, and uh, one thing he has not lost, and that is that forever smile. Amen. And I truly, truly love and appreciate the Myers family. Good to have the Sislick family with us tonight. Good to see Jesse here this evening. I think that we all understand one thing that we all understand about life. And um, while life is filled with a lot of mysteries, a lot of things that we do not know, there is one inevitable thing concerning life, and that is the fact that one day, that we will, not to sound morbid at all, but we will come to the end of life's journey. And so that is something that, you know, some people are so uncomfortable with that thought until they just block it so far from their mind until they never do anything about eternity. And uh, I, I don't think that we should live under the shadow or encumbered by that, but I have to live with that understanding. It is an undeniable fact. Therefore, I must live every day with eternity in sight. 
That must be something that I set the trajectory of my overall life about. I want to make heaven my home. Now, some days I am like I am this evening. I've got on a coat and tie, and, and I'm dressed up, and I look the part. But some days I'm just wringing wet with sweat, and I'm mowing my own grass. I want you to feel sorry for me about that a little bit, if you will. And uh, just, just living my own life and having to work out my own fears and frustrations. But despite whether I am standing behind a pulpit with an open Bible and a congregation before me or whether I am in some other scenario of life, I must live with eternity in view. I want to be saved. I made up my mind a long time ago, I want to make heaven my home. And so I, I have to live and plan according to that. The book of Jude has only one chapter, and it only has 25 verses in that chapter. But there, in those 25 verses, I would say there is so much meat in all of them. But toward the end of the chapter, um, Jude is giving some direction about uh, our responsibility to compel people into the kingdom until he makes this Statement in verse 22, he said, And of some have compassion, making a difference. Now, if you read the very next verse, verse number 23, we don't have that on the screen, but it says, And others saved with fear, pulling them out of fire, hating even the garment spotted by flesh. And so Jude's commitment was to reach for the lost, have compassion, making a difference. And that last phrase of that verse has always been something that stood out to me, making a difference. So we have to make a difference in the world that we live in. We have to make some kind of impact or influence. And so I want to take from those three words and use that as my subject tonight, making a difference. Of course, Jude is speaking about our duties of, as, as believers and our responsibility to reach for those that are lost. And I think that reaching is done in various facets, and I'm not going to talk about all of them tonight. We, we certainly have ministries of outreach to, to pro propagate the gospel in various forms and manners. Uh, what we're doing here tonight in this very service, in part, is reaching. We're, we're reaching and pulling, and, and not only for those that may not have the Holy Ghost, but for those that have the Holy Ghost, we're wanting to encourage them and strengthen them. And so we're going to, uh, we're going, if we're going to, to do what God has called us to do, we have to realize that the bar has been set pretty high, but not out of reach. The bar has been raised to a level, but it's still obtainable. And that level is to make a difference, make a difference. And uh, I've, I've fought within my own mind whether or not to even say this, but I will and, and trust that you'll just re receive it in the spirit that I say it in because you can't just use this analogy in, in totality to come up with something, but I have been very grieved in, in times past in preaching funerals where people live their whole life, their whole life, many of them decades and when it comes time, at the end of their life, there's hardly enough people there to even bid farewell. To think that somehow 
and, and I'm, not assume, I'm not trying to make the assumption that the number of people that attend your funeral is the overall statement of how the, or the barometer of your life or the effectiveness of that. But just to draw a point, I've just thought how grievous it is that, that you would have no more impact on than that in your whole world, in your whole life, to just live that many years. Does that make sense to you? Can kind of throw away the bones there if you don't mind and just take the flesh of what I'm trying to say. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to impact our world, then we're going to have to be pretty intentional about the steps that we take every day, every day. I can't wait until the end of the journey and then try to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm being called on now to make those decisions. There are many things that describe our lives here on this earth, and, and, and uh, one of them, of course, is our reputation that we have while we're alive and what people think of us. And, um, you know, I, I, the Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. And so if you're going for 100%, you might be careful about that because there's some people that you don't want to be rallying for you. <laughs> there's some people, if they are for you, there may be something wrong with you. And uh, so beware when all men speak well of you, but there are a lot of things that we have to measure our lives by. One of them, of course, in the world that we live today, not just in America, but around the world, but I've mentioned this many times, but an epitaph seems to be the final summary uh, that best describes someone's life. That sounds a little frightening if you ask me, because if you just imagine someone being called upon to summarize your whole life, decades of life, down to one just phrase or one statement, uh, that, that just sounds a little disconcerting. Most tombstones have the essential information about a person. That information includes things like the day that they were born or the day they, and the day they died. And, and perhaps this simple saying that somehow summarizes um, their, a life, a life that's lived. Most of the time, for the most part, I think they, these statements are meaningful. And, and it is someone, a family member perhaps, or many family members' best attempt to try to just put in a nutshell, uh, what that life represented not only to them but to those who knew them. And so most of the time, these are pretty sober. But occasionally you'll run across some very creative and sometimes humorous sayings. In Montgomery, Alabama, a graveyard has this epitaph carved on a tombstone. It says simply this, Under the clover and under the trees, here lies the body of Jonathan Pease. Pease ain't here, only the pod. He's done shelled out, went home to God. <laughs> and uh, so whether it is sober or whether it is humorous, it is uh, somehow someone's ability, even if it's warped sense of humor, to try to drive home a point. I think it's safe to say that we want to live a life that matters or a life that counts. We want... Uh, I don't want somebody to be in a perpetual state of mourning, but I, I do want somebody to know that I was here. <laughs> you know, the, the Bible says that David did all that he could do, or the Bible describes for us David's best efforts to save the child that was already marked, if you please, the child with he and Bathsheba, their first child. And, and so the Bible talks about David praying and fasting and and, uh, and just depriving himself in prayer and, and, and consecration before the Lord. 
But when he received word that the baby had died, the scripture says that he rose from the ground and washed the earth off of his face or the dirt off of his face. And David moved forward. In other words, life had to go on. We'll never get over some things, but we have to get past some things. And so we want to live lives that matter. We want to have years upon this earth that, that are fulfilling. I've often thought about the statement that was proclaimed about David. It is said of David scripturally that he served his generation. Now that's an incredible thing to summarize your life's story, that he served his generation. And I think that's an overwhelming compliment. I'm challenged by that one passage. And because of that, I believe that it is certainly of utmost importance how we live our lives every day. I want to underline that as many times as I can. I'm not talking about what we do on Sunday or what we do on Wednesday or what we all do when we're all together and everybody's looking, but what we do every day before God. Hosea refers, in, in Hosea 8 and 7, Hosea refers to this. He refers to a group of people who have sown their lives to the wind. This is what Hosea's analogy is. He said, those who sow their lives to the wind shall reap a whirlwind. And so we understand that, that not judgmentally, but we have met people that have sown their lives, sown their youth to the wind. And now in some of the days of where their youth is gone, they are reaping now that whirlwind. So we have to be very, very careful because as uh, Brother Oliver Barnes said, you don't just push one bean in the dirt and just get one bean back. But when you push one bean in the dirt, you're gonna get many beans back. So I wanna be careful what kind of beans I'm putting in the soil. So with that being said, I've gotta be very careful how I walk. If you agree with that, then there's, I believe, practical help from the scripture to help us to live lives that can make a difference. In Mark chapter nine, I ask you to join me there a moment ago. We hear Jesus underlining the importance of carefully living every day. He reveals to us several ways or several things that we can do to live lives that will count, live lives that will matter. It's here that Jesus speaks to us about those that we surround ourselves with every day. Now, I, like you, cannot help who I come in contact with occasionally. They're just... They're just certain things that merge lives, your lives together with other people. You can't help that just occasionally. But I can be very selective about those that I allow in my life on a regular basis. And so that's what I'm talking about. I can't help some of the things, but those that I surround myself with, those that are the closest to me, those that are closest to my family, I wanna be very selective about those because they will influence my thoughts. And they'll influence my decisions. Therefore, they will influence the journey or the path that I take. So I've got to be very careful, very selective about that if I'm going to live a life that matters. Mark 9 and 41, 42, the Bible says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And so our relationships with others are very, very important. While it's obvious that 
that we certainly can have negative relationships. The good news is that we can have positive relationships. I love to be around people that encourage me. They, they challenge me to be more prayerful, to be more spiritual, and to, to be a better father, and to be a better husband, and to, to, to just to be a better neighbor, to be a better friend. They just keep setting the bar higher, and I want to be around people like that. I say that all the time, to have good, positive influences in our life. In these verses, Jesus speaks about two ways that we deal with people. We can either deal with them positively through encouragement or we can destroy them through our own selfishness. In verse 41, Jesus speaks about someone giving you a cup of water to drink just because you're a follower of the Lord. That may sound like a small thing to do. That may sound even almost insignificant, but it's a very, very important thing because it's a basic act of encouragement. You know, when I read this passage of Scripture, I think about... Uh, those that run in marathon races, there are people that have just devoted themselves. That they're not necessarily with their party. They're not necessarily uh, on that team, but they have devoted themselves to stand on the sideline with a cool cup of water. And they're just there to encourage those that are running, to encourage them in the journey, to encourage them in the race. And so what we have painted here is a picture of almost, in our minds, a moment or a gesture of insignificance. But Jesus said... If they do that because you're a follower of me, then you're in, you're, you've become an encourager. Amen. The picture painted for the disciples was one of a long journey, an arduous journey, a hard day's toll in which they had spent themselves ministering to others and they were tired and thirsty. And let me just say this about ministry, and I'm not just talking about pastoral ministry, I'm just talking about ministry uh, at large, any ministry in the church and, and whatever you want to associate that with, children's ministry or youth ministry, Sunday school, outreach, inreach, the list goes on and on and on. One of, the, one of the key threads or elements in ministry is the fact that you don't every day at the end of the day look back and see the good that you've done. While somebody that's a builder, as I often say, at the end of the day when they're rolling up their cords, Brother Darrell, at the end of the day when he's rolling up his cords and packing all the tools away, he can point and say, I did that with these hands. I did that. You can see the evidence of where you've been, what you've done. But ministry, now that, that's, a, that's a little bit more slippery slope. You can't quite always tell at the end of the day. You can't tell at the end of the week and sometimes you can't, even tell in larger increments than that, that you have done anything at all. And so that's why it's so important that, that the church have encouragers. I'm not talking about people standing on the sideline to feed egos, and I, that's not what I'm talking about at all, to try to build and lift people up or men up. But I, I'm just saying that the, the spirit of encouragement, to encourage, let me just say this today, you ought to encourage the ministry leaders of our church, whether you have Children in Sunday school or not, you ought to thank the Sunday school teachers. Just thank you for what you do. And, and uh, whether, or not you are, uh, whether or not you have somebody in a nursing home, you may not have anybody in your family in jail or prison, but you ought to thank those in our church that go and visit them and encourage them. Why? Because, because you don't always see the reward. And so the Lord said that an encourager, somebody that can just give a good word, can just change. It can just kind of clear the fog and the lens. People, uh, the disciples were 
uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples and painting them as weary and thirsty. And then somebody comes along and recognizes their effort. They see their need and offer them some refreshment. He calls it a cup of water. That could be a word of encouragement. This is far more uh, than just a mere glass of water. But it's just that right word that you need at the right time. Has anybody ever come across that? Somebody just gave you just what you needed, just when you needed it. And it was enough to kind of just help you to catch a second wind and press on. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how, how tall you stand, how bulletproof you may feel. I'm going to tell you that everybody needs encouragement from time to time. There is an admonition in scripture that plainly says this, be not weary in well-doing. And that just sounds a little odd that you could be weary doing something good. But I promise you, friend, you can be weary in well-doing. You can be weary doing the right thing. And so that, that, that means that he said, don't, don't be weary in well-doing for in due season, you'll reap if you faint not. And you just think about uh, educators. If you just think about the field of education for just a moment, the educators that are sitting there. I, I know in every class there's always those that are anxious to get on the front row. I know in every class there are always those that they finished their homework before they even left school the day before. I know there are those. But then there are those others. You know that crowd, don't you? I mean, they just act bored out of their very existence. And you just wonder if you're getting anything or not. And this has been a season of graduation. And so I just, standing on the field the other night, I just thought, I wonder how many teachers there are present that are just, they're probably laid out somewhere in the grass. <laughs> they're, they're probably just passed out in the grass somewhere just thinking, I finally did it. I can't believe that they, they hear some names called and see them march across that stage. And they're, they're as bewildered as anybody there. Be not weary in well-doing because you're encouraging somebody. You're planting some seed. You're doing some good along the way. And so if we're not careful, we will forget that sometimes our soul can get dry. Amen. And a little encouragement right along then can go a long way. It doesn't have to be some costly gift. It may not cost anything financially at all. It may only cost just a little bit of time to encourage somebody along the way to help them, to lift the load. Encouragement has the power to build positive relationships. And even encouragement has the power to even turn negative relationships around. It matters how we treat people. It matters how you respond to situations and circumstances. And if our lives are going to count, then we have to understand this, people have to count. If our lives are going to matter, we got to get it that people matter. They matter to God, and if they matter to God, they must matter to us. But just as encouragement builds positive relationships, if we're not careful, people that are selfish and manipulative, that can destroy other relationships. Verse 42, Jesus warns us against causing others to stumble. It's an exhortation against selfishness. It's an exhortation against not doing things just to serve us and our own cause. We always have a choice as to whether or not we're going to build one another up or we're going to tear one another down. We have the power. The Bible says in the tongue is the power of life and it has the power of death. And so we have the ability to lift somebody up or we have the ability to totally destroy somebody. I've hung up the phone before and just felt like the whole world was mine. And I've also hung up the phone before 
and was trying to desperately walk into the sunset. And so you have the choice to make. And the disciples had a choice to make. They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. You remember that, don't you? They're seeking to keep people tightly knit together on their side and for their cause. And so they were arguing over who was going to lead and who was the, had the more powerful ministry. And they were becoming prideful and they were becoming exclusive and judgmental. And, and in doing so, you can't do all that without being manipulative. And so those kinds of attitudes always destroy relationships in the end. We have the power to choose to liberate people from the freedom of being all God can make, can God can allow them to be. I want to create an atmosphere, and not only create an atmosphere, but maintain an atmosphere where people in this church feel like they can become everything that God wants them to be. Amen. From their youth up, let them feel like they can grow and exercise and do what God would have them to do. I don't want to place obstacles in their way or just keep moving the line, so to speak. Amen. That would cause somebody to stumble or fall because those obstacles are placed there only because we're small-minded or selfish because we don't want somebody else to do anything better than we can do it. But Elisha looked Elijah dead in the eyes and he said, what is it that you would want? He said, I want a double portion of what you have. I want to be able to do twice what you've done. It was at that moment Elijah had a decision to make. Is he going to continue to destroy? Is he going to speak down? Is he going to try to snuff out this fire that has the potential to do greater things? Or is he just going to allow that to be cultivated? Is he going to allow that to germinate? Is he going to create an atmosphere in which Elisha could attain that? Apparently, Elijah made that decision. Because Elijah had seven major miracles in his ministry and Elisha had 14. And so we see that it did indeed come to fruition. It wasn't just some small request. But he said, I want that to happen. Somebody had to help him make that happen, create an atmosphere for that to happen. And so Jesus said, you gotta be very, very careful when you try to destroy or when you try to tear down. There can be jealousy. And jealousy isn't always found outside of the church. Now, it might get quiet here for the next 30 seconds, so just hang on. But jealousy doesn't just exist outside the church. Jealousy can exist inside the king's house. When Mephibosheth was exalted, when Mephibosheth was restored, and when he was brought into the king's house, that went well for a lot of people, but it went against the grain of Ziba, one of Saul's servants. It went against the grain, and when the opportunity was just right, it took a long time. It was a while in coming, but you see, finally the planets lined up, and Ziba had an opportunity to speak down and to say enough into the, eye, into the ears of David that Ziba lost his entire inheritance to begin with and then only half of it was restored in the end. Amen. And it was all over an untruth. And where did that jealousy come from? It was all under the roof of the king's house. And so I say tonight, God help us that we not be jealous of one another, but let somebody rise to whatever level they can rise. Hallelujah. Amen. Let the spirit of God... Put in them, put in them. I pray that we raise greater musicians. Amen, I was listening to our music tonight. I always do, but just listening to it tonight and our worship and oh, the power and the presence of God. I'm very, very thankful for our praise team and our singers and our musicians and the effort that they put in. That doesn't happen accidentally. They work very hard to do that, but you know what? I pray that God will give us greater musicians and greater singers and then don't let the spirit of jealousy be in us that we try to keep somebody and hold them back.
Amen. My wife was a piano player in our church for many, many years, and this is her testimony, not mine. But she said, I realized that I could only take us to a certain level. I was limited in what I could do. So there come a time that I had to step aside and allow somebody else to come along that could take us to another level. Amen. That's her testimony, not mine. And so there comes a time. And so you know what she does? She sits on every song. She, she sits there and folds her arms. She don't get here till after the singing starts because she don't want to hear somebody else play the piano. She don't get here till after all the singing's done because she's aggravated because other people are out singing her. They're holding the mic. No, no. Amen, this is not a, a praise her moment, but it's, it's all right if it is, I suppose. But amen, that, that spirit that says, let's move on. We gotta, let's go on. Let's go to greater things. Let's do more. Let's do more. Let's create an atmosphere where somebody can be lifted up and we can grow in other areas. And so we must be encouragers. We've gotta be encouragers. In the case of, as a matter of fact, she doesn't play so often now, we get invited to sing sometimes and we go other places. <laughs> I'm teasing and we have trouble trying to put it all together. But that's all right. And, and that, that's all right. I'm thankful for that. We really are. I say that humbly. But in the case of one believer encouraging another, when Jesus is described in verse 41, there is a reward. There's a reward. But in the case that's described in verse number two that's causing somebody to stumble, there is condemnation. Stumbling blocks we place in front of other people become millstones, he said, around their necks. When Jesus spoke about millstones hung around their neck and that person being cast into the sea, he was using an illustration that was relative to his time. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but the disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. And I would submit to you that the apostles had seen this happen. That they had actually with their own eyes watched somebody have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown out into the sea. Now that sounds horrible. And so when Jesus said that, that wasn't just a statement to them, but I believe it brought a visual back to them where they had seen that happen in times past. And Jesus said that it would be better, that would be better it would be better if a millstone were tied around their neck. It would be better if they were cast into the sea than to uh, cause one of the little ones to stumble. And so he said, you take this most horrifying scene, but it'll be better for that to happen than for somebody to cause somebody else to stumble. People are just too important to be led astray. And certainly there are people who purposely lead people astray. American history tells the sad story of many, but one that you would recall of Jim Jones and his followers. But he's not alone, sadly. Unfortunately, people today use the word of God in a deceptive way, and through that they lead many astray. But the Bible said it'd be better, it'd be better if you cause him to stumble, for a millstone to be tied around your neck and cast into the sea. And so this begs an answer to the question, how does this relate to me? We can put stumbling blocks in people's way in a lot of, in a lot of different manners. An unforgiving spirit, you know, just an unforgiving, dishonest in business transactions in our dealings with the rest of the world, you know, it's just not how you sing on Sunday. It's about whether or not you pay your rent. It's not how you worship here on when church is all going on, but it's whether or not the light company has a, any respect for you at all. Hear me now, hear me now. Assembling blocks, assembling blocks, assembling blocks. Amen, language, a language that's unbecoming and, 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 and life affairs that are unbecoming. Engaging ourselves in every little rumor that goes around, every little gossip. And you know what? We have gossip in this church and I'll tell you exactly why. I know the root cause, it's people. 
And as long as you have people, you're going to have rumors. As long as you have people, you're going to have gossip. But what we got to do is make sure that I am not a part of that because that may cause somebody else to stumble. Amen. That seed that I plant in somebody else's mind, that disparaging remark that I make, that cast, that shadow of doubt that I cast in the life and the credibility of somebody else, that may make somebody else lose their confidence. It may shake their confidence in them. And so I must be very, very careful because the scripture said it'll be better if they tie a rock around my neck and throw me in the sea. Amen. That list, of course, could go on and on. And if we're to live our lives to make a difference, then I've got to watch how I live. I've got to, I've got to make sure how I deal with other people. I've got to make sure what people think whenever you walk through the door. Amen. You know, we're not always at church. And so when you walk in the door, I want to be, I want to be mindful of what others may think. I want to be somebody that builds people up and not tears people down. I somebody that can affirm things and not just try to take away. Another way that we can live a life that really counts is to be victorious over sin. Now, one of the, the things that adds so much value to our elders is the fact that they have gained victory over sin in their lives. Amen. Wouldn't it be disappointing to have people that have been in the way for years and years and years and years still struggling with trivial matters of spirituality? At some point, they got the victory over a few things. They tucked that away, nailed it shut. The next few verses of Mark 9 are very alarming in nature, almost barbaric sounding. But this is Jesus speaking. This is not some man on a tangent or just some man on a soapbox. This is Jesus. He said, and if thine hand, Mark 9 and 43, if thine hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter hall into life and having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that is never quenched, shall be quenched. Where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better thee to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Now there is a method to the madness of what Jesus is saying here. It should be apparent to all of us that sin destroys our lives. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to get at in this section of scripture he is saying that because of the devastating effect of sin, it is better to be physically crippled than to enter into hell outwardly whole. Now, the word, and I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I found this interesting. The word that Jesus used for hell in this passage refers to Israel's valleys, valley of Hanan. Joshua describes it as marking the boundaries between the tribes of Benjamin and the tribes of Judah. And during the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh, human sacrifices were offered to their heathen God. Now just bear with me for a moment. Later, that valley, that same place was used for burning refuse or waste and also for just the disposal, not the burial, but just the disposal of the bodies of criminals where fire smoldered continuously. And so the word hell there is a symbol of the eternal waste of a human life. If you could just get a snapshot of that picture. 
not some pristine cemetery with beautifully white crosses, but just a place where all the garbage of the city was taken and all the bodies of the criminals were just thrown there where they would decay and the smell. And I, I don't want to be too morbid here, but just think about that. A life, a life that is utterly and wholly wasted. And that, my friend, is the picture of the end result of sin. Sin causes you to end up with a life that's just wasted and thrown away. A life of no effect. And that's why Jesus said that you need to deal so radically with sin because he knows what sin can do. Because sin can destroy, sin must be dealt with. Often if someone is diagnosed with some disease, surgery may be necessary right then, immediately, to cut that out, to cut that off. That may sound barbaric, but it is necessary in some cases because Jesus says this, and I'm going now to the method of what he was speaking about. He said, if it means losing an eye, so be it. If it means losing a hand, so be it. If it means losing a foot, so be it. It sounds like a man is just off the chain. Jesus is not encouraging people, of course, to arbitrarily just chop off their hand or their foot or their, pluck out their eyes, but his point is that you must deal with sin. It's not going away. You've got to deal with this. <laughs> Amen. I've often said if you've got a dripping faucet, you might can get by with that for a while, but if you've got a leaking roof, you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that. And I believe that Jesus was symbolically speaking because the hand symbolizes what we do and the foot symbolizes where we go and the eye symbolizes what we see. And so he said you've got to deal with those areas of life, what you touch, where you go, and what you see. You've got to deal with that. You must deal with that. He's saying to us, if these are practices that are dragging us down, then you've got to cut them off. How? Through self-discipline. <laughs> Amen. Through self-discipline. We must not only be careful that we don't cause our brother or sister to stumble, but we must not cause ourselves to stumble. Amen. And so how we deal with others counts, but how we deal with ourselves counts as well. Notice also that Jesus says that we are the ones that must do the cutting off of sin. If your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offend you, cut it off. If your foot offend you, cut it off. And so it didn't say if your eye offends you, run to somebody else and get them to take care of it. He said, you've got to do this yourself. You've got to take care of the sin problem in your own life yourself. It's your hand, it's your foot, it's your eye. You've got to do something about it. Amen. You're the one that must deal with it. You're the only one who can. And so in closing, I say this in, in, in the 49th and the 50th verse. This is what it all comes down to as our musicians come. For everyone, the scripture says, shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his saltness, Wherewith will you season it? Have you salt in yourselves and have peace? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So here's, here's what it all comes down to. How we treat others, how we deal with ourselves matters because what we do impacts the world around us. It's amazing how many people think they just live singly to themselves. 
I'm sure you know this, but, but to make my point more clearly, and this is just one small, or one, not small, but just one fragment of our society today. Because shoplifting is so rampant, merchants have figured in certain percentages that will be lost. They know a certain percentage of merchandise is going to walk out the door. And so because of this, they take that into consideration when they decide how much they're going to charge the people that are actually going to pay for it. (laughs) And so they increase their prices accordingly. So that means that everybody is penalized to a degree by the decisions of others. So it matters how we live. So when somebody says, well, what difference does it make if I put this pack of pork chops in my purse? (laughs) Didn't mean to make that gender specific there. but (laughs) (laughs) What difference? Well, it makes a lot of difference. In the end, I paid for those, or at least a portion of those, and didn't even get to smell them. And so it does matter. It all trickles down. (laughs) That's the truth. In verse 49, Jesus speaks about being salted with fire. In verse 50, he speaks about salt and its value. And what he is saying, he says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. To be salted with fire means that we will be tested and tried in order to develop the character of the Lord in us. That is the seasoning that we need to put something of strength and the value into our nature. If you've never been tested and tried, then you don't know if you can stand. When the bridge is finished, somebody has to drive across it. When the trestle is, has its last boat tightened down, some conductor in a train has to go across it. Somebody has to try that and to test it and to see whether or not it will stand. And I'll tell you what happens whenever tests and trials come along. It puts salt in you. Amen. You ever heard it said of somebody, so that's, that's a salty old fellow there. He's weathered a few storms. He stood a few times when sitting would have been easier. He kept pressing when giving in would have been a lot more convenient. And so it puts saltiness in the salt. Before salt can season and preserve I'm not trying to insult our intelligence, but it must be salty itself. It can't just say salt on the box. It just can't have the label. It has got to be salty itself or it cannot season and it cannot preserve. And so we can put whatever we want to put on the church sign. They'll change them out weekly if we want them to. We can put whatever we want to put on the church sign. But what matters is when people really walk in, is there salt? I know it said salt on the sign, but is it salty in here? I know it said salt when we had our Bible under our arm, but is it really salty when you get down to the crux of the matter? Amen. We must be salt. We must be salt. If we're going to season our world, then we have first got to be seasoned because you can't lead someone where you've never been yourself. History is replete with examples of individuals who made a difference in their world. People who are salty make a difference. Let's stand. They season their society. They preserve it. And Jesus declared that we must be the salt.
in our lives should count for something because we stand for something. And you know what? We're, we're living in a world today where nobody wants you to stand for anything. That's the truth. It really, really, really is the truth. We're living in a society where when you stand up for something, you're the odd man out. But God is calling the church to be the salt, to season, to preserve, to keep. And so maybe you think, wait, I'm way too far out on the limb here tonight. But I believe, I really believe what I'm about to say. I believe that our very presence, the very presence of the church of God in this hour ought to raise the moral atmosphere of our society. Amen. Please don't think this is a statement of ego. Please don't think this is a holier-than-thou statement. But I'm going to tell you that when you walk through the door of a place of business, somebody ought to be thinking, well, everybody's not giving in. Everybody's not selling out. Everybody's not giving up. Amen. Amen. Listen, if the world wanted what they have, they would stay where they are. And if we're not any different than they are, they've got no reason to change. That's the absolute truth. But people are looking for something that is distinctly different. Something that is genuine, something real. And the salt of our life ought to have healing. It ought to have a preserving influence because I believe we can make a difference. I really believe that with all my heart. And so I'm going to keep living every day with that as the crosshairs of my life and your life as well. Can we just gather around the front? Can we close our service with family prayer and let this song that we end with be more than just a song? Can it be our prayer tonight? This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.